0: Hello, and welcome to Time Well Spent, a place where the most brilliant minds in the world take on the toughest questions in science, politics, technology, and much more. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with someone I greatly admire, economist and author Arnold Kling. Arnold writes frequently about the economics of business and tech at In My Tribe, often drawing on a wealth of hands-on experience he obtained outside the ivory tower. We will focus our discussion on his book, Under the Radar, Starting Your Net Business Without Venture Capital, with an emphasis on how its advice can be adapted to the current environment. Arnold, thank you for joining me.
1: Uh, thanks. I'll, I'm curious to see how it will, can be adapted to the current environment. It was <laughs> yeah. written r- shortly after the uh, original dot-com crash. So it's uh, there have been a few changes since then.
0: Well, I just read it a, a few days ago, and I actually was surprised how how many of my questions it answered. So I'm excited to, to get more of your thoughts. My first question, you started your business at a time when no one was really doing anything commercially online. Uh, before you corrected them, some of your early clients even assumed you had personally created the internet. Can you give a little more background on what things were like at the time and how you came to realize you had an opportunity to build something no one had fully conceived of before? Um, okay, so I think
1: part of what sold me on the internet was the work of Hal Varian, who later became the chief economist at Google. So, uh, you know, it was it was just fortunate that I uh, happened to latch on to him uh, because he obviously had a lot of insights into uh, where things were going. Um, so I'll just, it, from a techno- technical perspective, you know, he distinguished between a circuit switch network and a packet switch network. So the telephone system at the time was a circuit switch network to, you made a connection. uh, When you made a connection, it it created a circuit between let's say you and me. Like if we were doing this on a circuit switch network, we would have a durable connection that would only drop after we uh, shut down. With a packet switch network, Little packets of data were are sent could be sent over every any number of routes uh, by these routers and they're sort of sent from end to end. So right now, I assume that what's going on is that we're sending this to each other in these little packets, and then they're being reassembled where I am and where you are. Uh, And somehow put in the right order, so it sort of makes it look like we have a durable connection, but we don't have a durable connection, we have this intermittent connection. Anyway, so Varian uh, looked at the economics of that and said these packets, packet switching was getting cheaper and cheaper because it was following Moore's law, circuit switching was not. And so there was a big future for packet switch networks. In fact, uh, other people were able to sort of pinpoint the date at which telephone calls would be cheaper to send over the internet than over the uh, uh, old AT and T television or sorry um, telephone network, and that that prediction proved to be accurate. So anyway, so that's for, for a tech from a technical reason. I, I was aware that. Things were going to move to the internet, and then some of it was just kind of romance. Uh, when I was at uh, Freddie Mac, I always say this before it became famous. And sometime in late '93, we went to an IBM research site, and they were um, sorry, a GE research site. I think it was. Gosh, I can't even be sure. Anyway. Um, we were looking into their methods of doing underwriting with using computers. And then at some point the the meeting came down to the higher ups talking to each other. And uh, so clearly I was not welcome in the room. And one of the engineers took me downstairs and showed me uh, Mosaic, which was the first graphical web browser came out of the University of Illinois and i just fell in love with it i said this is this is the future uh i was like this character in a uh, book called the wind in the willows who just gets fascinated by cars was that and, the toad yeah i was the toad and uh so there <laughs> so uh i had that view i had i was in a very uh low point in my career at freddie mac so I was willing to go off and take chances, and I rationalized it to myself that, well, worst case, I'll learn something about this internet. I do think the internet's gonna be a big deal, and i um so worst case i'll be I'll be some kind of internet consultant when all is said and done so i um, and I can conceive, conceived the business idea in kind of one sleepless night of... Uh, setting up a site for that would have everything for people who are interested in buying a home, including home listings and mortgage opportunities, because there's so much uh, sort of fat in the home buying system, and there still is. And I, I've learned since then that you can't cut a lot of this fat out because the the rent seekers are able to hold on to their rents. Uh, so if you'd asked me in 1994, what is the home buying experience going to look like five years from now, let's say 1999, I would have said, well, there are going to be almost no transaction costs. Uh, there's going to be, um, uh, a lot of consumer knowledge about mortgages, um, you know, all these the realtors are not, they're no, not going to be real estate agents anymore. Um, you know, I think, let's just say I'm not the only one who ever came up with that idea, but that was, that was in my mind. And so uh, it took, a, it, it took a while for reality to set in with me.
0: So it sounds like you had a tremendous amount of expertise in housing, and then you got exposed to this new technology and basically just Ran with it and said, This can be applied to something that I know a lot about. Um, is that that's basically right? It sounds like, uh, yeah.
1: And and, you know, fortunately, I hadn't gone to business school because uh, later that summer, I talked to somebody who had you know, who do understood business and uh, a couple people, and they both, you know, one of them pointed out that uh, you know, hardly anyone really had access to the World Wide Web, and so he said, "You know, you really ought to should, just should use Gopher, which was kind of the a prelim, you know, a kind of a a weaker protocol, uh, less user friendly that is that no one uses anymore." Um, and another one I talked to, he sort of grilled me on who could really use the internet because, you know, the. Ordinary civilians like like you or me had to, including me when I was running my business, had to access it through a, a very low bandwidth modem. So you know, if you if you were getting just one picture over the internet, it could take you know two minutes to download. Um, whereas the people who really had the connections. That were high speed were people on universities, those are the only places that had it. And so this one uh, entrepreneur that I uh, talked to about, um, you know, about the state of the business, this is like, you know, about four or five months into it, he just sort of, his eyes lit up, he said, this is an apartment market. Said, you know you you, you, you know the college students aren't going to buy homes, but they you know, when they graduate, they go looking for apartments and they often go looking for new locations. So he said, you know let's you should put apartment relocation service on and that was actually the first thing that actually worked, uh, although you know it's 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 not the most lucrative part of the real estate business by any means.
0: So to make it really concrete before we move on, what what were the core services that you provided you had? Like a mortgage calculator on your website. Uh, yeah. What other feature?
1: Okay, so I had various articles uh, informing people about mortgages, and because you know most people don't know much about them, and the mortgage calculator, you know, now they're a dime a dozen. But then it was sort of a novel thing that you could sort of you know stick in a you know an inter- interest rate and a home price and get and get a. Uh, what the monthly payment would be so people thought that was cute um we had very early on the new homes guide for Washington DC there there were about 24 uh sort of independent but you know sort of mutually linked uh uh, new homes guides for different cities. You know, Washington, Philadelphia were the ones that were most interesting to me. There was a guy from Philadelphia who said he wouldn't bother putting the his new homes guide on there because he said it's an apartment market. Uh, so, uh, but the the DC new homes guide people like to look at it. They would you know they could browse through the pa- the pages of the new homes guide and look at homes for sale, and they could sort by various criteria. Um. You know, not but even though it was very little, certainly by today's standards, uh, it was very popular with people because there wasn't much on the internet that was of, of real practical use. You know, this is the web in April of '94. There are probably fewer than a thousand websites total. So people liked it. They liked just playing with it to play with it, just to see, you know, just to see what they could do. Uh but it you know, the, wasn't great at generating revenue. One comment that somebody left on the site was, congratulations, you've started your lemonade stand on the moon. You just have to wait for the astronauts to get there. And that was kind Ooh. of the situation as of that time. If I can have one more thing, which was really crucial, is that um, it was really, really hard for an ordinary civilian to get on the Internet. You know, I think what's the comparable thing today is it's really, really hard for sort of a non-technically skilled person to get to invest in crypto. You know, and that's why these third-party exchanges have, have kind of propped up, uh cropped up. The uh I actually so Windows didn't have a way for you for you to get on the internet. It didn't have a, have what's called a TCP IP stack. So I had a disk, a little diskette, you know, it's a floppy disk that had a a TCP IP stack, but I just could not figure out the whole procedures. There was like this complex set of procedures. I couldn't get it to work. So I had to call the, the internet service provider, which is a small company. And the president of the company drives over at night in a driving rainstorm and helps me install the TCP IP stack. So I should have real. this is like, you know, a week after I'd started the business. And, you know, I should have realized that boy, you're in a lot of trouble. Um, and so to, that situation lasted from April of 94 to August of 95. And that was a big reason I had no competition because w ordinary civilians couldn't get on the web. So why bother uh, putting up something related to home buying or mortgages. And it was only in August of 95 that two things happened. Microsoft finally put out Windows 95, which had a TCP stack, IP stack built in. So, so all sorts of people could get on the internet. And America Online gave its users access to the web, which they'd been holding off and holding off doing because they thought it was a threat to their business, but ultimately they, they had to do it or else they would lose their customers. So when AOL came on and uh, and Microsoft had Windows 95, then all of a sudden the web was exposed to the general public. And at that point, uh, the, there was actually some potential for the business.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, my understanding is that up until 1993, it was even illegal to do most commercial activity on the web. And so you're hopping in right at the beginning in 94 before all the entrepreneurs have come in and really like made this, like put a lot of effort into making this accessible to the public so they can make money off of it. Um, and so you really didn't take off until a few years later, which I, I'm sure we'll touch on um, yeah. later in the interview. Um so in the book, you teach many things and an aspiring business founder wants to know uh, what makes an idea worth pursuing, how to build proactive, uh, productive relationships with team members and clients, and how to finance it all. Um, but you also describe the process of starting a successful business as a series of miscalculations. Um, how does that tie into to this discussion? And how is that different from maybe how people conceive of the process of entrepreneurship?
1: Um, well, I, I think a lot of people have come to the especially venture capitalists have come to understand that uh founders make a ton of mistakes and it just a and they have to kind of you know it's like imagine a uh you know in football a kickoff returner trying to find a plate a hole where they can you know run for a touchdown and they keep running back and forth and side to side and trying different things. And that's kind of what this is what it what it's like. it. I think you know most people familiar with startups would say that it's actually rare for something that you plan before it starts to work out exactly according to plan along the way. Um, so I guess that that's where I'd put it. In in my case, I think what was what was amazing was the tailwind that the growth of the web provided. I mean, it's just like nothing that you've ever seen in history and probably won't see again. Although, um, well, well, I would have said you won't see again, but I think the smartphone acceleration did that. So people who were early to figuring out what would be useful apps were in the same position with a strong tailwind. Uh, But that... So that so the once you had that tailwind you could afford to do a lot of stupid things and do a lot of trial and error. The big first mover advantage I had was that by the time competitors came in I already knew that what they were trying wasn't going to work cuz I'd already tried it myself. So that's the advantage of of that that's part of a first mover advantage that maybe you don't appreciate is that um you know you you make your mistakes early and then you just sit and watch other people make those same mistakes and throw even more money at it.
0: So I think in the book, you put a pretty encouraging spin on this this idea that trial and error is so important that you can get a lot of things wrong and still end up with a really great business if you um, have a good idea that's well matched to to your talents. Um, I wonder how that may have changed more recently now that you have, you know, if you look at a company like Amazon, I get the sense that they're essentially in the business of doing trial and error at scale, and they're, they're super optimized, they have a bunch of small teams experimenting with all kinds of possible innovations, they run user testing, uh, they iterate over and over again from there. Um, does the existence of companies like this make you less optimistic about uh, under the radar style entrepreneurs? Um,
1: I'm not sure what to say on that. Like, for example, at some point around 1907 or 1998, uh, Microsoft jumped right into our space. They put out Microsoft Home Advisor. And the first version of that even had some things that were better than ours. Uh, but I think it just it wasn't important to Microsoft so it just you know it just didn't draw enough attention from their corporation if 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 it had been if they had had it as a somehow a separate business with a you know just an all out drive to make it work they could have buried us i mean absolutely you know there was nothing that we had that was so proprietary that they couldn't have buried us but we ju- they just kind of let it languish it's like oh yeah we know we can do this and we d- and we'll do it well and probably the the person the executive who was in charge of it cared about cared about it but um it it, it, it was just like a lack of, lack of will to compete so i think the thing about amazon is if they have the will to compete uh in whatever you're doing god help you right cuz you're right they've got all this capability and i would say in general one of the things that surprised me uh is how corporate the internet became and how successful some of the bigger businesses became mm-hmm. and how much more difficult it was for a smaller business so i think i mean i thought from the very beginning and part of what attracted me to the internet in the first place it was oh this is the little guys can come in you know we the cost of a web server is tiny compared to what the cost of a, you know, building a store would be, or, you know, so it, it's, it appeared to be just the ideal thing for the little guy. I remember Daniel Pink sometime in the 1990s wrote something called free agent nation. Again, another one of these sort of manifestos for the little guy, which is in some sense, what that, what under the radar is, uh, you know, it, it, I, I, Positioned myself against venture capitalists. I thought, well, the venture capitalists are looking for these home runs, but the internet's going to be a bunch of singles and doubles. It wasn't really right. Um, the the venture capitalists and the big co- and big companies, you know, companies that became big, ended up being much more powerful than I ever expected.
0: What's maybe the best hope uh, for? avoiding notice of, of something of one of these companies and starting a business today? Uh,
1: (laughs) that's a good question. I think you'd have to know the domain. You have to be pretty confident that you have, uh, something that they won't go after, uh, or that, or that you can have some, you know, particular proprietary advantage. So, uh, I see in your box, you have time well spent. That's Razib Khan's uh,
0: phrase, right? Oh yeah. Um, he, he he has like a reading list, I think, that uses a, a similar yeah. phrase. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you can imagine, you know, his domain knowledge in uh, genetics being something that could be of a, a real competitive advantage that, you know, somebody else couldn't, uh you know, couldn't replicate necessarily. Uh, but even so, you know, I think, you know, in biotech in particular, the people, the small companies that have domain knowledge, their their exit often has to be to be purchased by a major pharmaceutical company as opposed to being able to go all the way to being, you know, raising, you know, going IPO themselves.
0: Gotcha. Um... Definitely an interesting topic. And and you talk about potential kind of exit strategies into venture capital in the book as well, um, which people may be interested in looking at. Um, So my next question is uh, related to the interviews that you do for your book. So you interviewed 25 other founders. Um, What additional lessons or cautionary tales have you learned from these individuals since the time you published?
1: The most striking thing I learned was the problem that I call the early divorce. Uh you, you know, it's it's you know venture capitalists don't look for individual founders, they look for teams. So um I was an individual founder of leaks for the first year and then kind of you know met my uh as they say in, in uh in uh, Hebrew, which means sort of your 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 love match. Um but the um a lot of people start out and it turns out their partner really doesn't want to put full time in it or just, you know, it, it turns out there are a lot of things that you have to work out with your founding part. You know, if it's a founding partnership of two th- two or three people or four people and you, and if you have to go through a divorce, that, that just, that really sets Sets people back, and so I just hadn't thought about that, and and did interviews and found people who'd gone through that, uh, and that that's just a very tough thing. What so about mo- moral? The oh, story is really, you know, if you're going to found something with somebody, don't make it on the basis of assumptions or you know ha- half a conversation, but you really have to, you know, work out a bunch of contingencies in advance and really know that you can work with somebody and that their their assumptions you know, connect with your assumptions.
0: And you should have some plan for uh, maybe a trial period or what to do if something doesn't quite work out.
1: Yeah, you definitely don't wanna be in a situation where you haven't agreed how to split things up if you have a split up. So if you've done 80% of the work and the other person insists that they're entitled to 50% of the company, that's just brutal.
0: Yeah. Well, it was striking to me how many of the arrangements you made between founders, even getting along really well, were pretty much just even Steven in order to avoid conflict.
1: Yeah. Um, but they have to but then there's an assumption there that it's going to be even Steven in terms of contribution. And that and when when that gets out of line, that's that's a real problem.
0: Gotcha. Um, let's play a game of overrated, underrated entrepreneurship okay. edition. Um, okay. let's maybe start with an easy one. Elon Musk.
1: That's an easy one.
0: I'm not, I, I was being <laughs> facetious a little bit.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, I, People have thrown a lot of banana peels at him, and he hasn't quite hit the ground yet. So I guess I'll go for underrated.
0: What most causes you to hesitate? Uh,
1: Well, because he's so highly rated to begin with. Uh, So he can't be underrated by much.
0: Makes sense. Um, The show Shark Tank. Overrated Um, or underrated?
1: Overrated. It's just entertainment, and I don't think those uh yeah i think it's a lot of baloney
0: do you think it actively steers people wrong in any specific ways that bother you um
1: i guess i i don't i'm not a a devotee of it uh the way i mean uh when i watch it's because i'm trapped with people who watch it uh and they enjoy it more than i do um i think it to the extent that it uh focuses on the idea and not just sort of the the execution of it and maybe maybe i'm even wrong about that but uh to me it's uh you know ideas are easy to come by execution is hard and i don't know that you can you can uh explain your execution in a five minute pitch. So
0: makes sense. Um this next one predates the internet by a little bit, but I'll ask it anyway. Is Phil Knight overrated or underrated?
1: Um the founder may- of Nike. <laughs> uh yeah, because otherwise I wouldn't have get, gotten it. Um I, I'm gonna say I don't know because uh, I'm not I'm not familiar with the business model for business history of Nike. I
0: liked his book, uh, Shoe Dog, quite a bit about his experience. Um, How about marketing and sales relative to other things that entrepreneurs tend to focus on?
1: Well, as as you know from reading the book, I'd say it's very underrated. Um, The whole point of the book is that the time that founders spend fundraising, they should spend selling, uh, that they're creative ways to sell before you really have a product if nothing else you can pre-sell you can say you know what would it take for you to buy this uh to pay for this or how much would you pay for this and anyway so I'm a, I'm a big fan of selling so i'd say underrated especially by the the person who thinks in engineering terms you know i i've you know or in buzzword terms uh yeah. you know sell something.
0: You suggest in the book that personal charm is an underrated quality. How can one learn to express charm over email and text communications?
1: Um, that's an interesting one. Uh, I have to think about. Uh, um, I think just I think sort of respecting people's time is probably. Important and early on trying to hear from them as opposed to sell them, so you know sending somebody uh, a long description of some of your product is probably not as good as finding out where their pain is and that's really a key in in selling is you know you want to know the customer's pain point that's much more important than the features of your product that's a that's a lesson I've learned I learned both. You know, in person, but also from reading, uh, in particular, a book called Strategic Selling, which has been around a while, but has has survived and been revised, and it's probably it probably more valuable than my book.
0: It seems leave that to others. It seems like um, charm under your definition is is highly related to empathy or or putting yourself in their shoes and be able to see things the way that that they themselves see it um ha- this is a broader kind of topic of of interest in your later work that looks at the politics and and uh conflict between individuals with asymmetric insight um do you do, what connection would you um maybe expand on there
1: um yeah i think that it's hard to that um, it's hard to beat something into people's heads, so um you know sort of meeting them where they are is the skill, and that's sort of this cognitive empathy um, and it's I think it's very important in sales it, you You've got to understand uh the other person's pain point. Um, you know one of the things that helped a lot in uh in my web business is one of the first things I put up there was a comment block, and I read every comment like within you know within twenty four hours uh so people could comment on the site and comment on you know just say whatever they wanted to uh to let me know what what they liked and what they didn't like and you know I was I would constantly make tweaks. Or maybe even I—I you know, don't remember anything in particular, but tweaks or major changes uh, in response to those comments, because that's so having having feedback from your consumers is really important. I think a lot of people realize that,
0: and the the trial and error is really important here too, because um when you throw out a product you sometimes they like the feature that you didn't think much about and they don't care about the thing that you spend all your time you know piping up in your mind
1: yeah yeah they um yes and especially on the internet you just have to keep changing and uh you know sometimes you see something that a competitor does and say well we should be able to do something similar to that or or that that doesn't look like that's going to work and you watch it and you know, hopefully you're right and it doesn't work, but then sometimes you, you have to change your mind.
0: Right after you published the book, you uh, came out with a Q&A um, and in that Q&A, you answered the question, what business would you try to start today? Uh, I'm curious um, what some potential areas uh, you, would, you would be excited about uh, right now for starting a business.
1: Okay, so where's the tailwind? um I think you know just what we've seen in the last couple of weeks there's a a tremendous tailwind behind uh machine learning, artificial intelligence um you know I think open a i is just begging you to come up with businesses that are based on that um so that that looks like a strong tailwind. I think the Uh, Sort of genomic medicine, or whatever you would call it, and and sort of biotech in general is uh, interesting, but a little but tougher because I think you 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 have to have a lot of domain knowledge, and you've got to incur a lot of fixed costs and a lot of risk, just because you know in the five years it might take you to have a viable product you know you could be superseded by some technological change so that's so i i think i think i go with the machine learning as as something that has the tailwind um i'm trying to think if i were to start a business because i don't think i could do machine learning um i think the field of education even though a lot of people are trying things there uh I think there's a ton of potential there because I think there's a lot of dissatisfaction uh, with the way public schools go, even the way private schools go, uh, a lot of dissac- dissatisfaction with higher ed. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think that's another, uh, another field to look at. Uh, but, you know, the the downside being there's uh, tons of competition and, I think the thing you have to get past there is um, people are very change averse. That is, they don't like what they see, maybe, but there's a lot of status quo bias. Uh, People just think, uh, you know, this is what a K-12 classroom looks like. This is what a college looks like. This is what a credible degree looks like. Um, So... The, the, uh, probably the thing you most have to think about in the education space is, okay, there's this status quo bias to begin with. How am I going to get get past that? And, and again, you're not going to talk people out of it. You're going to have to, again, meet them where they are, give them trial periods, and uh, hopefully kind of lure people in gradually to a new model.
0: It seems like homeschooling is one area where this could really take off if you if you did it right it could spread through word of mouth as you uh, just deliver a really good product to um, even even just even not necessarily a huge number of parents in a metropolitan area
1: yeah I I agree I think that you know that you know for an ordinary civilian who's not super techie or not a you know a a, a you know expert in in the biotech field uh, the education probably has uh, more potential and it'd be fun to try to marry the education with the uh, with the AI. I mean, you know, if you could, you know, figure out a way to turn kids loose on the chat bot and, you know, find things out for themselves and kind of monitor them and mentor them, that might be a cool thing to do.
0: And, uh, and Maybe you could even start to kind of whittle away at education's monopoly because I think there are like kind of side arms to education, like music education, where like I was just playing with chat GPT the other day and it was, I was saying, write me a song about this and the style of this artist and give me chords. And it was giving me chords <laughs> and, um, that, you know, simple stuff, but for a beginner guitar player, uh, I would have loved to have that. Uh, and it'll tell you the strum pattern in more, wow. in more detail and then, then even if you talk to a, a teacher who maybe they know how to play guitar, uh, maybe they even have some experience teaching, but it's just so intuitive to them that they don't know how to explain it in the terms that you're really looking for it.
1: Yeah, well, that's a really cool application. I mean, yeah, that, uh, yeah.
0: Um, awesome. Um, well, one thing you talk about... Um, you often say that price discrimination is a great way to be profitable. Can you explain what you mean by that and give a few examples for how a new entrepreneur could apply that insight?
1: Yeah, well, a lot of this uh, was sort of informally laid out by John Perry Barlow, who was a uh, a Grateful Dead. He exclaimed to fame was supposedly he was a Grateful Dead lyricist, although he's not from. I don't know that he wrote any of the songs that I I most like from the grateful dead uh, and then he became a founder ultimately of the electronic uh frontier foundation you know kind of an early rebellious free speech oriented group who knows what they're like now um but he he wrote something called the economy of ideas just pointing out that uh ideas uh you know are 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 uh not only costless to distribute, but their value goes up the more distributed they are. And that's that's a real difference. And so Hal Varian, again, uh, along with Carl Shapiro, wrote this book, Information Rules. And the lesson you get from that is that uh, when you change something to, that can be di- from distributing it in the form of atoms to the to the form of bits, it really changes things. So, you know, as of... 1990, if music was distributed physically on CD-ROMs, once you get distributed on the internet with bits, the marginal cost of distribution is zero. Um, if anything, you want things to be more distributed because it'll be more popular. Uh, and that's been true of a lot of businesses, right? Facebook, the marginal cost of additional customer is negative, right? You, The more customers they have, the better they are. Better off they are. So um, you have this high fixed cost because you know, coming you know, developing Facebook is huge fixed cost. Uh, developing a pharmaceutical is huge fixed cost, but manufacturing the pill is you know m- low marginal cost. And that's just not a normal economic good. It's like a, almost a quasi public good. Um, so the economic problem isn't oh, I'm gonna you know set marginal revenue equal to marginal cost. Because uh, you know the marginal cost is close to zero. If you do that, you're you, know, you you get you get nothing but losses. So the the challenge is to recover overhead. That is the main economic challenge of you know pretty much any internet based business and some non internet based businesses like pharmaceuticals. Um, and so what follows from that is if you're trying to maximize revenue you look for ways to price discriminate so that the um, you can charge the lowest possible price to the marginal user, to the user who just, you know, has what we call elastic demand, the user who just barely interested in what you have because even a low possible price, you get something for them. And then you want to charge the highest possible price to the person who really, really wants it. You know, so in my example with Twitter is like people who have, very few followers probably don't get a whole lot of value out of Twitter, but people who have a lot of followers do. So the thinking is: well, charge you know a monthly fee to people with more than, let's say, a thousand followers or five hundred followers, and charge less to other people. And that would be a, a a useful way to price discriminate. You won't if you charge the same fee to the person with a hundred followers. They'll probably say, oh, I'm not getting that much value out of Twitter. Forget it. So you have to charge them a low fee, but the person with the high followers says, you know, this is this is really important to me. Uh, or, and you can find other sort of uh, combinations of things, uh, features in Twitter that people like to use. Like, you know, a lot of, like people like to use direct messaging. Well, you say, well, if you're not a subscriber, you can't use direct messaging. Uh, people like to use quote tweets and retweets. You say, well, you know, to do more than, Five of those a month, you're going to have to be a subscriber. You know, high-paid high paid subscriber, not a low-paid or no-paid subscriber. Anyway, that's uh, you know some kind of practical examples of price discrimination. And uh, you know, I think we'll see. You know, we we see some of it in non-internet businesses, but I think you, you got it's got to be all over on internet businesses.
0: Uh, I'd like to close with some questions, um, kind of in the mold of uh, Tyler Cowen's production function. Um, you know, trying to get a sense for for your background and and how um, all of these things in, have informed your success. Um, what features of your personality or background most enabled you to make such a bold shift into the business world? Um, you were an MIT trained economist. You'd worked at all these prestigious institutions at the at the Fed and Freddie Mac. Um, I I kind of imagine that many of your colleagues would have thought that you were crazy to leave that environment. Oh, absolutely. They probably looked down on entrepreneurship to some extent as well.
1: I wouldn't say looked down on it, but just, yeah, but yeah, I thought it was kind of crazy. Um, um, Part of it is, you know, a contrarian personality. um, And part of it is, uh, you know, I'd say probably the number one thing is creativity. That you know, there are some people who are compulsively creative. I think I'm one of those people, and large organizations are very misaligned with with a compulsively creative person uh, because you know the the bureaucracy is set up to say say no. And I think that's actually rational. I once wrote an essay that it's basically rational because if you're a middle manager at a big organization. Um, you don't have enough skin in the game in the organization to justify them taking one of your wild ideas and running with it. Uh, if they, if they did it as much, if they did it frequently, they would just, you know, the expected value is negative and they would, you know, and they've got valuable franchises. There's just, you know, it, it's quite rational to, for them to set up a vitocracy as it's called veto uh, bureaucracy um, so that, you know, that, that, there's a fundamental misfit with these large organizations that if you're compulsively creative, you have to deal with. So, um, you know, there, there, it was just time for me to go. Uh, and I was just lucky that the Internet was sitting was sitting there as kind of the, the you know, safety net, oddly enough, that I could jump to
0: what role has religious community played in your entrepreneurial endeavors if any
1: um i would say not much i think of the religious community you know uh you know part of a, a, a jewish synagogue and there the i think of the religion is there for you primarily at kind of the main points of life so there's Uh, you know, Judaism has a ritual at birth, it has a ritual around the time of puberty and the bar mitzvah, it has a ritual when you get married and has a ritual when you die. And that's, so that's not too closely related to any business world. Hmm.
0: Um, I thought perhaps uh, it would be a little easier socially to maybe like part ways with some of your work colleagues if really kind of At least in my life, as as a religious person, I feel like almost insulated from what other people think because I'm mainly tied into the religious community.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. I don't how I was able to part from colleagues. I mean that that was. I think think that may be, again, another part of my personality. There are people that, I mean, I engage with really strongly. I can remember, you know, from elementary school, high school, (laughs) um, not as much in college, uh, somewhat in grad school, um, at the Fed, at Freddie Mac. And then, you know, you're thinking at the time, well, you know, these are, you know, You've got such close relationships with these people, and it it just doesn't take me that long to forget about most of them, which is maybe sad. But that's, uh, I guess I've I've not had a problem disengaging, and I don't think it. I don't think the religion has anything to do with it. I think it just has a is either a feature or a bug in my personality.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. Um, You started Home Fair when you were already forty years old. What advice would you give to those who might be inclined to think that the entrepreneurship window is closed for them um
1: you mean because they're too old i mean I think, yeah. I think I think at my age I think it's too it's closed for me and i've I've said that to people um it i don't i mean the evidence seems to be that uh forty is close to the optimal age in terms of the chances of success that the younger people have more energy um and you know perhaps more risk taking risk tolerance but they don't have much domain experience um so uh and as you get older i mean you really ought to be very dedicated to a business i mean some uh, i mean in the book i say it's okay to start something part-time but at some point if you know if it gets going you really have to put a ton of energy and it's not just calendar time. It's really doing things that you've never done before. Like I never had networked before and I'm still terrible at keeping track of people. You know, I, in, in theory, I could have a very, I could have, you know, thousands of LinkedIn people, just people, because I've, I've over the years I've interacted with people, but I let them go. I mean, it's just sort of like this, my story about not, Staying so much in touch with the with the people in in my life, uh, so intrinsically, I'm a terrible networker. But networking was absolutely the key to success for my business. I didn't. I, I can't go into it at length, but yeah. So um, so I think maybe that just comes down to being super motivated uh the you know it, and maybe you know f if, if, once you're past you know, age 40 or something the ability to be super motivated kind of goes away cuz you know maybe you have family ties you have uh hobbies and interests that matter you may have a more diversified portfolio of things to do with your time and that that might make it harder to uh, do the entrepreneur thing.
0: You mentioned networking as not being an inherent strength of yours, which uh, motivation and really caring about making a particular project work definitely helps at approving at that. But um, another piece is bringing in people who have strengths that offset some of your weaknesses. Um, what advice would you give uh, for seeking out to, to do that? Uh,
1: that it's important. Um that it it all it it tends to introduce personality differences. I mean the, the key to my business was when I partnered with this guy in Arizona who, you know had no technical knowledge, had a high school equivalency degree, uh, yeah. who had a temper. I mean, you know, we you know, we could barely get along with each other. Uh but the synergy was incredible. I mean he, you know, he was a a super salesman and, you know, very passionate salesman. And uh, you never, you know, I couldn't have done it without him. He couldn't have done it without me. And and we kind of recognize that, but even so uh, it was hard to get along. So um, I think uh, he had this uh, philosophy called the integrity agreement, which is, you know, if you've got a problem with me, you come straight to me. And if, it's, and if we're going to have a hard time dealing with it, we'll bring in a third person that we trust to, you know, observe and monitor us arguing through it. Um, and we had to use that a few times. And uh, you, know, you, you might need like a formal mechanism like that, working with somebody whose uh, skills and mindset are quite different from yours.
0: Last question. How do you continue to express your entrepreneurial side in the things that you do now, whether it's writing for In My Tribe or in other projects you may have in the works? Um, well, as
1: I say, I'm sort of compulsively creative. I'm, I, I put ideas out and I, you know, work on them to some extent. And, and you know, if it feels like it's uh, being rewarding, I'll go deeper into it. And if it's not, I'll I'll back off. Uh, I tried, for example, and we talked about education. I tried an education startup. I tried to develop sort of an all-purpose app for teachers to share uh, quizzes and lesson plans. And it didn't take me long to realize it wasn't going to go anywhere, so I dropped that. Um, the Substack thing—I just, you know, it was—it was almost like Mosaic. I said, "Oh, this is a great thing." I was, you know, very romantic about it, and still am. And so I. You know, pursued that. I've tossed out this idea of a network based university where you replace the grades and credentials with uh, a mentor student relationship where the mentor gets to know the student and uh, provides letters of introduction and letters of recommendation. Um, again, I feel like I'm too old and not sufficiently networked to carry it out myself, but I keep pitching the idea to different people and, you know, somebody somewhere is going to hopefully take some variation of that idea and, and, and put it into practice. Um, so I don't know, those are examples,
0: I guess. What's the missing piece for having a university like that?
1: I think what it take, what it would take is a, um, someone who's very well connected in the business world, to uh take it and run with it. So somebody who has a great Rolodex, um, you know, imagine um, you know, I mean he's not gonna do this, but imagine if you know, Patrick Collison said, I'm gonna do this, right? And he's, I mean, if he calls up anyone in the business world and says, okay, would you like to be a faculty member? I'm a fact, you know, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna be a faculty member, would you like to do this? I'm sure that, you know, everyone, you know, 90% of the people he would call would accept. Um, And once you have a, uh, you know, let's say, you know, 500 people willing to be faculty members and this kind of thing, you have, you know, with their contacts, you have tremendous network coverage and you have the ability to cover a lot of subjects because I think, you know, the you know p- people in business know a lot more than their business there are people in business who have you know who know Shakespeare who know you know classical Greece I mean that so um I think once you had that and then you would get uh recruit you know high school students to say all right take a year see what you, you know see what you get out of this and uh, it, as if hopefully a fair number of them after a year would actually be placed in jobs by their mentors, they would continue to learn from this. But but you know you would have the, that kind of momentum anyway. That's that's the vision, as it were.
0: It seems like Tyler Cowen's Emergent Ventures is not too far off from being able to implement this. He'd he'd probably want to delegate to to someone else to really take charge of it, but just with that network alone of like uh grant recipients you have a lot of people who uh you know owe a lot to Tyler and i'm sure would be willing to mentor young people in a wide variety of different areas
1: yeah i th- i think getting hold of the young people uh is solvable i think the, the to me the bigger challenge is getting putting the network of you know mentors who i think would primarily from be from business some of them might be you know, adjunct professors, or you know, people like you know Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying, who are these people who you know really like to teach and just think that the universities hold them back. Uh, the you know that plus business people would be uh, you know would be the mentors slash faculty. I think that's that's the challenge, and then you have the status quo bias of parents, but I think you can push past that. Uh, the other question that people have raised is really how many young people are ready for something like this you know that you know is it just are there a few thousand autodidacts out there or are there you know 200,000 to a million um I think if you stretch out to the world you know not just the United States you can probably find a kind of a critical mass of people who who could uh Uh, who could, you know, be the sort of self-starters that I picture or the autodidacts that I picture as being kind of the ideal student for something like that.
0: Definitely an exciting idea. I hope to see it come to fruition someday. Um, So do I. uh, Arnold, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It's been a pleasure.
1: Okay, I enjoyed your questions.